Show me the money. This is the MoneyWeb Be a Better Investor podcast. Picking the brains of professional investors on their investment strategies, successes, and mistakes. Your host, Rake Fanika. Welcome to this week's edition of the Be a Better Investor podcast. And in this podcast series, I pick the brains of the top professional investors in the country and we delve into their investment approaches. We talk about the research process they follow to identify potential investments, their individual best and worst investment decisions. And uh, we also look at actually what stocks they hold in their portfolio, both their professional and personal portfolios. And the idea is to find a few golden nuggets from their perspectives and experiences to assist amateur retail investors to become better investors. My guest today is Chantal Marks. She is the head of investment research at FMB Private Wealth. Chantal, thank you so much for joining me. Your title has always intrigued me a bit. Now, obviously, you lead a team of researchers who is looking for new investment opportunities but what do you do on a day-to-day basis okay so we have a few heads of a few research or parts of research within the the fmb stable i specifically focus on client-facing research so when we are looking at my portfolio specifically it is to put together actionable research for our clients that can either be portfolio managers within the business or more specifically retail clients of F&B stockbroking and portfolio management, as well as Shane Vest. So the guys who are actually going onto their online platforms and they have to make investment decisions, we provide them with research, hopefully in a language that they understand so they can make better investment decisions for themselves. So you crunch numbers, you look at trends, and then you say, for example, Anglo-American is a buy. And that is what you recommend to the client. It depends. It's a very, it's a very complicated question. So what we do is we look at it on both a long-term basis and a short-term basis. From a short-term perspective, we will look at our long-term investment case. So do we like the company overall? And then we'll look at factors such as the technicals, for example, or short-term market dynamics like what we're seeing right now, potentially a big sell-off, which offers a really good entry point. And then we will issue something that we call a trade idea. Outside of that, we also do a very in-depth work in order to formulate that long-term view. And that we provide to clients to not just try and profit short-term, but to really identify and buy stocks that they can keep in their portfolios and literally just forget about it and not have a sleepless night about what is lying there in their portfolio. In that case, we would actually look at basically everything. We'll look at what are our expectations from a global macroeconomic perspective? What are expectations locally for growth? How does that factor into the different divisions within that business? We will forecast revenue, we will forecast Mm. margins, we will forecast cash flows, and then get to a sensible valuation of where we think the stock should be trading and compare that relative to where it is trading to hopefully find a a good long-term opportunity. Let's talk about the trade idea research. Is that a a short-term punt or how should your clients perceive it? We always give a long-term view on the stock as well. It really is there to provide either an entry point for a longer-term investor 
in a stock that they already like or a stock that we already like. Or it is for guys who do execute on a shorter term basis. We typically would give a time exit. So a time period over which this trade is expected to play out. We will give a target price and we will give a stop loss level. So guys who are trading short term can execute on those ideas. But we won't put out a trade idea on a stock that we hate from a longer term perspective or that doesn't look good to us fundamentally or where we distrust or dislike the management team or where we don't see longer term structural support, where we think it's a, an industry that isn't competitive. We will always put out an idea on a stock that we actually like from a longer term perspective. So if you are a long term investor, you want to buy something and hold it forever or at least for the next three to five years, our trade ideas will offer you a good spot to start getting involved. Give us an example. What were your last two trade ideas? Okay, so let me quickly call them up. We actually had a trade idea that was meant to go out this morning on Anglo Gold. And as we wanted to press send, it was up 13%. So we decided to not send it out. But outside of that, let me look at what else we have been putting out there this week. So we did have a trade idea out on Bitcorp yesterday, which is a stock that we really like longer term. It's a very defensive company, plays in food services, put out really good results yesterday after we sent out this trade idea, which we were pretty stoked about. They've shown a really good recovery off of COVID-19 lows in most of their jurisdictions actually exceeding revenue with margins recovering quite nicely as well. That looked good to us from a shorter term perspective. Then we actually put out a trade idea on a really interesting international ETF. I forgot to mention that this is both for local as well as international stocks. It's called the First Trust Long Short Equity ETF. And the idea is that you buy this ETF and it almost simulates something like a hedge fund, which tends to do quite well in volatile markets. So instead of going through all the rigmarole of trying to find a retail hedge fund that you can invest in, you can buy this ETF on most of the global exchanges. What is the name a, again? It's the First Trust Long Short Equity ETF. So an ETF like this would do well during volatile periods. And that is why we decided to opt for this one. Also in last week, let me just find last week as well. While you're looking, but I'm sure this ETF would have done really well over the past few years because we've seen such volatile markets. I will have to kind of pull up the, the latest mm. performance uh, graphs as of today. But when we put out the idea on Friday, it had a one-year total return of 8.2%. So not too great. But I mean, I think a lot of that would have been made up during this super volatile period from the start of the year. It's in US dollar terms, 8.2% is nothing to frown upon, especially when you add some diversification to your portfolio. How many hits do you have and how many misses with these trade ideas? <laughs> it's actually about 50-50. We did an analysis at the start of the year on how we fared last year, and it ended up being 50-50. The difference is that our upside is a lot more than our downside because we do stick to our stop losses. Unfortunately, with a stop loss, sometimes you can end up with quite a bit of remorse because Oftentimes, you'll have a stop loss on a stock that we really like. That's why, for example, if you're a longer term investor and you bought British American Tobacco when we said you had to buy it in February last year, you would have been stopped out if you were a short term investor. But if you held on to it longer term, 
and you followed the trade idea for an entry point rather than anything else, you would have done quite well with that idea. Mm. But yeah, that's the reason why trade ideas work is because we're quite disciplined with our stop losses. So to give you an idea of how we fared last year, our local trade ideas delivered a portfolio performance of 38.2% last year against the JSC's 29.3%. And our international trade ideas delivered a portfolio performance of 51.8% against the S&P's 28.7%. So we're actually quite proud of this. And uh, year to date, we've also done quite well, mostly because our stop losses are working <laughs> again, <laughs> because this year has been an absolute bloodbath, right? This advice goes to your clients and the discretion to trade remains with them. Uh, can you see that your clients actually uh, use this information and trade accordingly? Yes. So especially on the local side, we have quite a bit of investor interest. I think when it comes to professional traders, mostly they would use something like our local trader platform, which is kind of geared towards short-term trading. And then clients on the share invest platform that goes through the F&B online banking, they would typically only trade to the long side. So we would see them trade, but they won't necessarily trade out. They will take that longer term three to five year approach and use trade ideas as an entry point. Do you follow your own advice? As far as I'm allowed to. <laughs> what are the we, rules? Um, so our rules are that we cannot trade within seven days of putting out a recommendation. Sometimes that results in the trade becoming a little bit less attractive. And sometimes it does. We do benefit from it. But yeah, I wouldn't tell clients to get involved with a share if I'm not comfortable holding it in my own portfolio. And yeah, I'm very comfortable following my own advice, even though I'm very wrong at times. No, it's an interesting dynamic. Um, you know, you want people with skin in the game to give you advice and then you have corporate rules to prevent you from talking up a certain stock. But are you an active investor investing, say, post the seven-day limit? Yes, so I am an active investor. I actually didn't used to be. I was, I was exceptionally boring. I was just putting all my money into unit trusts for years and years and years. I'd have these running debit orders. But after the 2020 crash... I decided that this was a very opportune time to start looking at stocks specifically. Also, what we started seeing was that there were specific stocks that were looking a lot cheaper and like a lot better value and that we liked the narratives a lot more of than others. And on an index basis, things didn't look that attractive. So I felt like it was an opportune time to start trading for myself or to start building up my own share portfolio. What do you think are fair expectations or return expectations investors should have? Because if you talk to professional investors, they say, listen, if you can beat the inflation rate by five percentage points, uh, then you've done well. But many people think currently our inflation rate is five percent. So if you have a 10 percent return per annum, I should be satisfied. Many people would say, yo, that is just not good enough. I would like a much more aggressive return and I'm prepared to take more risk. What advice would you give to such a person? Prepare to be disappointed if that is going to be your approach. I actually have I've had the same issue in my own family where a family member, we asked them what they wanted to do with an inheritance and they said that they want to double the money in five years and they were serious about it. The reality is that if you look at markets historically, if you look at it over a hundred year period, CPI plus five or inflation plus five is a very, very reasonable expectation over time. Over the last 15 to 20 years, we have had record low interest rates globally 
that have artificially inflated asset prices. But that might not be the case into perpetuity, which means that you are going to be disappointed when interest rates are at a more normal level and returns normalize to where they've been historically. From a South African perspective, you could probably expect 10 to 12% per year over your lifetime in terms of the JAC. For bonds, it's probably closer to 8 to 9%. For cash, 5 or 6%. And when you're looking overseas and you're looking at developed markets and those equity markets specifically, a very reasonable assumption is actually 5 to 7% from international equity markets and not the 25-30% that we've been seeing over the last 20-30 years that have been driven, as I mentioned, by very low interest rates and some of these technology companies that just kind of blew the market out of the water. If you actually look at the underlying performance of the S&P excluding those companies, it looks a lot different. Many amateur investors would say, why did so many professional investors or highly paid fund managers not identify these opportunities uh, in the technology sector? They have research teams, big ones. Uh, They analyze the fundamentals of the company and the macro environment to a T. And despite this, they missed these opportunities. Has the way investment opportunities should be analyzed not changed significantly over the past decade or so? I think it's changed to a certain extent. So when I started out in the market about 12 odd years ago, we were very disciplined in terms of looking at cash flows only and assessing the management team and looking at previous M&A activity and whether or not the return on invested capital has been working out. And we weren't really focused on the bigger structural story. Now, when you're looking at a company, you almost start with, well, does this company have something that's going to change the way we're going to do things in the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years time? That's almost the starting point. It's almost become the starting point relative to where we were, well, 12 years ago when I started, and I'm pretty sure prior to that. So we've definitely started looking at thematics, the way that the world is changing and how companies are going to fit into that narrative or even drive that narrative to a certain extent. That being said, that's the starting point, right? But the cash flows need to be there. The management team has to be solid. They have to have a decent track record of investment to at least have a decent reason for why they're investing money the way that they're investing it. Because if they don't, and if you don't focus on these cash flows, and if you invest in pie-in-the-sky ideas, you might end up very, very disappointed. Yeah, but I think that's the key point. If you highlight all of those good fundamentals and you make an investment decision based on those fundamentals, why do you only have a hit rate of 50%? (laughs) So markets are very unpredictable, right? So you have macroeconomic factors that could count against you. For example, at the moment, we have a lot of our companies that are under pressure because of geopolitics that we didn't necessarily see coming when we put out those ideas or didn't think that they were going to end up being as serious as they were or have such a big impact. Inflation took the market by surprise towards the fourth quarter of last year, and that changed the outlook for interest rates. So there are a lot of things that are outside of your control that do impact the near-term return on shares. But that hit rate that we've spoken about, the the 50% right, 50% wrong, is also based on us sticking to the short-term strategy, right? So sticking strictly to that stop loss. If you're going to use this for a three- to five-year view, 
you probably won't stop yourself out and that hit ratio could look a lot different because it won't be impacted by near-term events. And that's why I'm in my being, I'm a longer-term investor. And that's where most of our focus lies. Trade ideas is one portion of what we do. But the real work that happens within my team and that I love specifically and I'm very passionate about is actually looking at whether or not this company is going to provide you value over the next three, five, 10, hopefully 15, 50 years. Let's talk about your best and worst investments. Let's start with the best one. What do you regard as your best ever investment? I have proof that my best investment ever was buying Sassel at 30 Rand. <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully, from a house perspective, we were also quite overweight in the stock at the time. We opted not to sell it. We did hold it all the way down. But it, it's definitely been my most successful investment to date. Do you still hold my, the shares? Yes, I still hold it. I'm very happy to still hold it up another 3.5% today because of well, what's happening between Russia and the Ukraine, but basically driving the oil price right now. I did trim the position, though, actually quite early. What I tend to do with these things is I like the stock, I invest in it for the long term, but once it's reached a certain level, once it's made a certain percentage of profit, I take my capital out and just keep the gains invested. I think it's more psychological than anything else. But I, I did take a little bit of money off the table quite early on, I think around about 200 Rand. For reference, the stock is now trading at 340 Rand per share. And then my very worst investment ever, and please don't laugh at me, but yeah, the stock's still listed. It's called Lux. It used to be called Taste Holdings. I went to a results presentation as a young grad, and I thought it was a fabulous company because they gave us all the best snacks. So <laughs> they took all, <laughs> they gave us scooters, pizza, because that's what they were, they owned back in the day. They sold us the whole idea about how Domino's is going to take over the South African pizza market. And uh, I thought it was absolutely fabulous. Thank goodness I didn't have a lot of money to invest in it. But uh, yeah, what a supreme disappointment that ended up being. And a valuable lesson. It's probably the most valuable lesson I've ever learned. Don't get distracted or drawn in by the razzmatazz. A lot of companies have a lot of razzmatazz around it. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, if you look at Steve Jobs and the presentations that they would give around the new products. Even Tim Cook still does it now at Apple. Adrian Gore always does something fabulous with the discovery results presentation. I mean, I was once there where they tested someone's sugar levels on stage to show a new technology or show off a new technology. So, I mean, it's not always a bad thing, but it should not be the reason why you decide to invest in a company because you had a really good time at the results presentation. Or buy Willie's shares because you like their peaches. Just lastly, what are the biggest mistakes you think retail investors make and what advice would you have for them to have a hit rate in excess of 50-50? The biggest mistake is panic selling. And perhaps that kind of ties into to why I'm a long-term investor and not a short-term investor, particularly bounding myself by stuff like stop losses, although that's very important when you are a short-term investor. But 
panic selling is is one of the worst things that professional and retail investors do. So you get to a point where you're so disappointed in how the stock has fared that you're willing to take quite big losses just to be rid of it. There is also the flip side where you kind of hold on to something because you feel like you, you're emotionally connected to it. But the, the overwhelming mistake that I see more often is people selling stuff out of a place of panic and not really thinking through, well, has the investment case actually changed? Has the outlook for cash flows for this business actually changed? Is there a fundamental issue that we need to address here? I mean, obviously, when the company's management team is accused of fraud, it's probably a good idea <laughs> to panic first. But when you do see a company's share price come under a lot of pressure, perhaps for making a pretty sound business decision, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, WBHO yesterday, then it's probably not a good idea to just dump the stock. If I understand exactly what you're saying is sometimes the biggest mistake is not buying the wrong share, but is selling a share of uh, a good company too early. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's not even just panic selling because the share has fallen 20%. It's also selling something that you feel hasn't done anything. So you're like, oh, this thing isn't doing anything for me. And then you just dump the stock. But nothing has changed around it fundamentally. I, I think probably the right way to actually put it, because as I mentioned, there's a flip side to it as well, is to say selling something or buying something at a point that is out of kilter with the fundamentals of the company. So selling something that's too cheap or buying something that's too expensive. But it's an interesting dynamic because many people hold a dog of a share and they hope that the share price will recover. And an investor who actually holds a good quality company, which is undervalued and waiting patiently for the share price to recover. How do you distinguish between the two? It's almost an impossible decision, really. And I mean, I've just been looking at Process and Naspash over the last few days. And I mean, it just keeps on going down and it's, it's just offering more and more value, but you almost don't want to buy it too soon. Or once you've bought it, you're kind of circumspect about it. You're like, oh no, I bought it too soon. Like just like stick to your levels. And if there's upside, then allow the, the share price to actually grow into that upside. Yeah, a good example of a growth stock becoming a value stock. But let's uh, leave it there. Chantal, thank you so much for sharing your insights today. And I've actually found a few nuggets which I will implement. Most notably, I will try and get hold of your trade ideas. Um, is it publicly available? Uh, it is available for FMB clients. So clients who trade on our other online platforms, ShareInvest, ShareBuilder, or on the local trader or global trader. Thanks, Chantel. That was Chantel Mark. She's the head of investment research at FMB Private Wealth. Show me the money. That was the Money Web, the A Better Investor podcast with Rake for Kneecap. Thanks for listening. Catch up and listen to all the Money Web podcasts on moneyweb.co.za or the app. Money Web, your trusted source for business and investment insights. Oh,